Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Friday. So glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives, Jim. And so often we've got really heavy topics weighing on us, you know, whether one of the presidential nominees is uh, mentally with it, uh, whether we're going to see more carnage in the streets and so on and so on. Uh, Today's good martini is just really refreshing and really fun. Uh, 2018, Democrats did better than usual in Texas. Beto didn't win, thankfully, but uh, he spurred enough support to make a couple of Republican Congress members lose. And so Texas Republicans are trying to win a couple of those seats back and also make sure they hold on to seats from a couple of retiring members this cycle. So Texas Reloaded is the theme. Dan Crenshaw, who is, uh, he's up for re-election, but he's not expected to face much serious competition, is leading the effort to recruit new people to save Texas. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to save Texas. To do so, you must recruit an exceptional team of congressional candidates. They must be courageous, patriotic, and absolutely fearless. Time is of the essence. The nation's future is dependent upon your success. Still know how to fly one of these things? Dan Crenshaw. I'm putting the team together, Wesley. You in? You know I wouldn't miss this for the world, right? And so, Jim, uh, Dan Crenshaw gets the uh, the mission through the uh, the glass eye or whatever eye he has uh, behind his eye patch. Then he skydives to go find uh, candidates to run in these key races. He lands at a, a military base. Uh, finds a guy named Wesley Hunt, who's running in Texas 7. That was a Dem pickup in 2018. Also, uh, August Pfluger is there. He's an Air Force veteran, Hunt an Army veteran. Pfluger's running in Texas 11, which Mike Conaway is retiring in. Then they go get Beth Van Dyne in Texas 24. That's another Republican retirement. Tony Gonzalez, a Navy guy. He's Texas 23. That's where Will Hurt is retiring. And then Genevieve Collins uh, up in the Dallas area, Texas 32. That was a Dem pickup in 2018. So it's like a superhero movie. It's almost like an Avengers Assembled type thing and uh, a lot of other fun uh, parts to this video, Jim. This is how politics should be. It's engaging it, it gets a message across, but it's just really cool. Yeah, uh, and it's, you know, what's kind of interesting is it's, it's not an attack ad. It's not really denouncing or attacking any of the uh, incumbents that they're going against. It is just, here are these people, they are terrific, kind of winking at the camera. And it just seems to keep going and going. You're like, oh, that's cute. Oh, wow, he's really going to jump out of an airplane. Wow. Oh, oh, look, he did the superhero landing from Deadpool. That's funny. And it just keeps building. And this is one of the reasons why, like, it, it, a couple times this week we've talked about how there are no permanent victories in American politics. And there's been this idea of, you know, the, the uh, uh, coalition of the ascendant and the coming Democratic majority. And you know, James Carville wrote 40 more. There's always this belief that, oh, uh, our side's going to win and it's always going to be better. Well, the thing is, is that when a party has a particularly unpopular leader, that leader leaves and it comes, it gets, you know, new faces come along. And these are all, uh, in, in, for a bunch of these candidates, they're emphasizing their military record. Yes, they have the print at the bottom saying that appearing in uniform is not meant to imply DOD uh, endorsement or, or anything like that. 
But look, when the public sees that a candidate is a veteran, they feel a little better about them. You, you don't know anything. They could be have any stances on any old issues, but you do know at least one thing about this candidate, that they're willing to serve their country and in many cases willing to put their lives on the line for their country. And there's a, oh, okay, all right, you, you just earned my respect for that. I may not agree with you, may not end up voting for you, but that's one good thing I know about you. And this entire ad just leans into it uh, almost to, to, you know, hilarious proportions. And you see them joking around and making fun of each other's uh, branch of the military. And it just, it's just fun. It's just a, a really enjoyable ad. I, I'd like to think that if a bunch of Democrats had made the same ad, I'd still like it. It's still pretty good. So it's just a... Um, it's what politics used to be before this era of nonstop, you're the worst, you know, negativity. Uh, it's, it's all, it's very positive. It's very proud, very patriotic. Uh, and it's just enjoyable. And I just, I hope this is represents more of our politics. We've talked about how Dan Crenshaw represents a really promising, uh, uh young face in the party and just, uh, you know, kudos. Hopefully we see more of it. Uh, the, some, you know, if, if there's any congressional districts where I think Republicans have a good shot of winning back some of those seats, Texas would be a pretty good shot at them. Um, you know, a lot of these are suburban seats. We'll see how things go, but uh, you know, a lot, to, a lot, a lot to enjoy. And you got to figure an ad like that's going to turn some heads. You know, videos. Well, maybe that video took a little bit of money to produce because you got skydiving involved and all sorts of other things there. But, uh, you know, heads up to other states and, and their Republican efforts. I mean, these videos, you can turn these around pretty quickly. You still got a few weeks and these things are engaging. You get the name out there uh, in a way that's uh, compelling and, and grabs attention in a way that your uh, singular candidate videos might not. So uh, not a bad template for other folks to follow. All right, let's move on to our bad martini, Jim. And Russia, Russia, Russia. This is the story that uh, the Democrats refused to let go away for three and a half years, and now they couldn't wish it to go away fast enough. This is still going on with how the Trump campaign was uh, investigated back during the 2016 campaign. And more information is coming out from the Justice Department. Some are saying, hey, Judge Sullivan, the longer you keep this Mike Flynn thing going, the more documents are coming out and we're going to reveal more and more stuff. Uh, this is a thread, at least a partial uh, read of the thread from Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, and she's getting information from Catherine Herridge over at CBS. She says, so Christopher Steele's main source for the uh, anti-Trump dossier, he was the subject of a nearly two-year-long FBI counterintel investigation 2009 to 2011, under suspicion of being a Russian spy and a threat to national security. Early in the Obama administration, Subsource reportedly attempted to recruit two individuals connected to an influential foreign policy advisor to Obama, said if they got jobs in the administration and access to classified information, he could help them, quote, make a little extra money. FBI says he had previously had contact with the Russian embassy and Russian intelligence officers, and thanks to Paul Sperry, we know the name of this subsource and that he, for a period, at, uh, worked at the Brookings Institution, uh, which is a democratic think tank. But here's the real kicker, he says Strassel. Per these documents out from Lindsey Graham, the FBI knew about this prior counterintel investigation into the source in December of 2016. It knew it was relying on information from a suspected Russian spy. And of course, the worst part is they still went ahead uh, with more FISA requests. Uh, despite knowing this. Uh, so the more egg on the face of the FBI, slowly but surely, we're learning more here, Jim, and it's getting pretty ugly. Yeah, so my first thought is, Greg, it is late September, and we are still learning new things about the investigation of Donald Trump in 2016. It, late September 2020. 
four years have gone by and we're still finding out new things about this, this uh, probe into the president, into who was then a candidate and then became president of the United States. Uh, that, that screams cover up. That screams somebody trying to hold, withhold this information. And look, of course the public is going to want to know why did the FBI choose to investigate a presidential candidate? That's a very big deal. Like this is the hope, this is not a, uh, decision that you make lightly. This is not a decision that had to recognize that they were working with political nitroglycerin or, or maybe, maybe plutonium is the proper metaphor there. In every uh, nonfiction spy book I've ever read, every fiction spy book I've ever read, you always see early on there's some sort of scene where once some source comes in and starts saying, you know, giving you information, the good characters are always saying, how do we know we're not being played? How do we know this isn't a double agent? How do we know? And it appears there was way too much credulity regarding this. It appears that there was no uh, skepticism of this figure. There was no, at no point did we see anybody in the FBI saying, wait a minute, doesn't this seem a little too perfect? How do we know we can trust this guy? These questions either were not asked or they were brushed aside or those concerns were just overruled. And, you know, I, I go back to that anecdote from James Comey where he's discussing the, uh, you know, the, the telling Congress about the reinvestigation of Hillary Clinton, reopening the investigation because of what they found on the laptop of Anthony Weiner. And he's telling his top staff, and one of his staffers says, do you realize that by doing this, you might elect Donald Trump? By the way, like this, you know, says to me, like there are people sitting around that table who were concerned about electing Donald Trump, who were like, no, I in my position as an FBI lawyer, he identified that person. We don't know if it was, you know, one of the lovebirds, but you know, it was a FBI lawyer. Somebody at that table was very concerned about electing Donald Trump. And the other thing we know is that they were basically, at that point, it's very clear, their political uh, ramifications of their actions were clear. And Comey said, that's a good point. No, it's not, because you'd given your word to Congress, and you don't get to withhold information from Congress because you think it might elect the guy you don't like. No, sorry, you don't get to pick and choose like that. So uh, a lot of the worst suspicions about the I had always thought it was groupthink. Maybe, maybe it wasn't groupthink. Maybe these people were like, look, we can't let Trump get elected. They, you know, we, just, we just can't, you know, we're, we're all good Democrats. We've all enjoyed Obama. We want Democrats to be in charge in Washington forever. Maybe that was the thinking there. But whatever it is, the fact that we're learning stuff now in late 2020 indicates that in 2016 and stretching into 2017, there were people at the FBI who did not want us knowing what they were doing. And it wasn't because of, oh, national security or we need to protect sources or any of that kind of, or any of those other justifiable reasons. It's that if the public sees this, we're going to be embarrassed because we're going to look like a bunch of partisan amateurs. Guess what? You look like partisan amateurs because you were partisan amateurs. No, that's exactly right. And there's also uh, text messages been released where uh, people at the FBI are literally texting each other, you know, if there is ever a counter investigation, counter intel investigation into this, this could be a big problem. That's also a pretty good sign that uh, you're probably headed down the wrong road legally. But uh, it's amazing how long it takes for this stuff to get out, the actual truth to get out, whereas, uh, you know, the Times and the Post had anonymous scoops day after day, even before Trump even got into office about what allegedly happened. So it's a mess. It's a big mess. All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And you spent some time talking in the morning jolt about this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not even interred yet. And the Democrats are already trying to figure out a way to make sure that the conservatives, if they actually do get a majority on the Supreme Court, don't get it for long. It's now time just now when we're finally at a spot where conservatives might actually get a regular majority to have term limits on Supreme Court justices. They want 18-year terms. 
Each president gets two choices every four years. Uh, the folks currently on the court uh, would be grandfathered in, so they could stay in for as long as they want. But anyone, uh, if this were to become actual law, uh, would be set for 18-year terms, and then they would get folded back into lower courts. I'm really sure they'd be excited about that after their 18 years are up. And so... Jim, for decades and decades, even though Republicans have appointed a majority of justices on the court, the liberals used to have at least uh, a working majority in a lot of cases and certainly had a chance to, to move the swing votes. But the second it looks like it might work the other way, the Democrats are all of a sudden wanting to change the way things work again. Yeah, you know, Democrats have realized that uh, Supreme Court justices can be on the court for a long time. They can be in a long time well into their senior years and that this is a problem, that it should be limited after only 18 years. They just noticed this was a problem now. Uh, it, it did escape their attention when John Paul Stevens was on there for 35 years. Ruth Bader Ginsburg served for 27 years and Breyer is now in year 26. But now they've noticed this is a problem. Uh, look, you don't have to be a crazy Democrat to think this. My colleague John Plund has written in, in favor of this a few times. It, it's not the craziest idea in the world that there are a couple, a lot of logistic questions of how it would work. First, the Democratic legislation apparently has a provision that says you can only nominate two justices per four-year term. Greg, is part of this going to be a ban on death or something? <laughs> God forbid, you know, three of them are in a car and the car crashes. All three of them, you know, like, what do you, well, no, sorry, you know, you only get to point two. Nixon did four justices in about a, you know, a little more than a two and a half year window. Sometimes it's going to happen that way. Sometimes the president's not going to have any. Jimmy Carter, I believe, did not appoint anyone to the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, that's right. Carter had none. It all depends. You know, like this, this, I understand people looking at our entire system of government and saying, there's one job in government where you're on for as long as you like, that there are no term limits. Uh, you never face the voters again. You never face anybody to say, no, you're doing a bad job short of impeachment. And we have an impeached Supreme Court judge. Uh, you know, those, the odds of that are extraordinarily unlikely. So at the end up, you are having septuagenarians and octogenarians who are making really important decisions. And you and I used to joke about how Anthony Kennedy's decisions would be dependent on which side of the bed he got, in, he got out of, to be highly dependent on who they hire as clerks. Now, I, I get the, the objections and the problems of the current system. I think the problem is you, any replacement system just takes away the old problems and creates new problems, high among them with term limits. I, I, I've not seen any argument that makes the sense that you'd be able to limit the current justices to 18 years. And you'd be able to say to uh, uh, the Clarence Thomases of the world, nope, sorry, you got to go. You're, you're out. Breyer, out. Roberts and Alito, you got three more years and then it's out of there, buddy. You know, Sotomayor, clock's ticking, seven more, you know. I just don't think there's be, you can get current justices off, which means that if you enacted a term limit system, the new ones would have this 18-year limitation on how long they could be on the court and the other ones wouldn't and I think most people would say that doesn't really make any sense to have some justices term limited and some justices not the problem with the court really gets down to some topic you and I have come back to a couple of times this week people now see the court as a super legislature that it, if you can't get the presidency if you can't get uh, the, the majority in the house majority in the senate if you've got five people who feel a certain way about a law on the Supreme Court, well, then that's going to be the case. That's, you know, and at the heart of it is this tension of what we want the Supreme Court to be. The justices put it there and they knew it wasn't going to be, quote unquote, accountable to the public and that this was uh, by appointing people to life that there was really, you know, the odds of somebody being off the court 
um, because of an unpopular decision were extremely unlikely because they wanted one part of our government that could make unpopular decisions, that could say, hey, you know what? This is right. It doesn't matter what the majority says. It doesn't matter what the majority of the public believes. This is right. This is what the Constitution says, and we don't care who doesn't like it. This is, you know, it's about right and wrong, not what's popular. This is our ruling. We don't live in a pure democracy of everything. The problem is that once you say to people, you know what? We are empowering you to be not accountable to the public. You should do what you think is right and what is just and what is consistent with your vision of our founding documents, regardless of whether the majority of the public agrees. And then once you say you can do that, the justices are going to do that. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the reasons we worry a great deal about who gets on there. And we have this fear of, you know, of them turning to David Souter or going into this mentality of they go on to the court with one mentality. But then they hang around with the others and they, they you know, uh, begin to get influenced by the thinking of the others and all of a sudden, they start going a certain way. And they start having this idea that sometimes Ruth Bader Ginsburg can be very explicit about. The idea that you get on the court and you have this vision of the way America ought to be and that every court, every case that comes across your desk is an opportunity to push America, or maybe some cases drag America, kicking and screaming, in the direction you think it ought to be. And I think a whole bunch of us are looking and say, this doesn't work out well for us. Uh, Roe versus Wade takes the decision of abortion out of the states and basically says, no, no, we, we the justice have decided this. Obergefell decides the issue of gay marriage once and for all. You're not allowed to have 50 states with 50 different rulings and 50 different, inter different interpretations. This is what sets up these tensions about the Supreme Court. And I don't really know if there's an easy way to kind of finagle your way around this. And the thing is, I don't really think term limits takes away that problem. It just kind of rejiggers it so that you're having this fight on a set 18-year schedule instead of, you know, when does the justice's heart give out? And that's, you know, I, I could, there are flaws in both of them. I'm not sure having a set schedule makes the, the tensions or the passions or the stakes any lesser, Greg. Yeah, just be really weird to see, let's say it's Barrett that's announced here in the next day or two, and she gets confirmed, and she's pretty young. She's not even 50 yet, and Gorsuch is early 50s, Kavanaugh's, what, early to mid-50s, and so they're all in there for life tenures because they get grandfathered in. They could watch a couple different cycles go through <laughs> if this were to pass under you know, uh, Democratic uh, Congress and so forth. Uh, just kind of wave them in, wave them out, and uh, just be very, very awkward uh, to watch that happen. I also don't know, Jim, uh, if this would ever actually make it as an issue before the Supreme Court. So it'd be weird to watch justices trying to decide if their own jobs yeah. are, are term limited. It's kind of like uh, going to Congress for a constitutional amendment on congressional term limits. It uh, doesn't usually work out too well. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just kind of easily envision in a unanimous 9-0 decision, nine <laughs> Supreme Court justices said that no, they should not be term limited. Should your job end soon? No. Okay, moving right along. All right. So, Jim, the weekend is here. I guess by the time we uh, reconvene on Monday, we'll know who the president's nominee is. And uh, then the fun really begins. Plus, we have a debate next week. Oh, so exciting. Uh, when's November, Greg? Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please remember, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. And while you're there, we're always grateful. We really appreciate a five-star rating and a kind review. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll see you on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.